You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. You're listening to part two of the Bob Dragic episode. I took 28 days in town illegally. Uh, well, we'll talk about that at a later date, and I'll go into some of the cultural things with you. But uh, yeah, and I got caught. And we'll go into that too, and the repercussions of of uh, native life with a with a GI. I spent a pretty good hitch there. So I they wouldn't let me extend anymore. Let's put it that way, or I would have done one more six months extension, but. They gave me, on the last one, they gave me 30 days. And I'll go into a reason for that, too. Huh. Interesting. So when I was there, you know, got there in 67, uh, our posts were somewhere between two and 400 yards, probably in length, probably 100 uh, feet long or 100 yards long. And uh, we would post every other post on the first shift and then fill those in on the second shift. Um, I think during your time, things started to change. And and that's kind of what I'm interested, how it was when you got there. And then as you went through that uh, evolution of changes. Okay. When I first got there, there were a lot of guys that got there and been there a while, and we all remember our first night on post. But the posts were, well, you had the Delta area right in front of the kennels. Then you had the Gulf area over by uh, EOD, and then the Bravo area behind EOD over to the script gate. And then you had the script gate TACAN area. Then you had the Army warehouse area, which we didn't have dogs in, but we did eventually put dogs in there on occasion. Then you had the Juliet area, uh, which was the longest area that we had actually. Uh, and the hotel area, of course, between the Bravo and the, and the Gulf. Yeah, we had probably the same as when you had there, am I right? Yeah, we had Australians there. Were they still there when you were there? Yeah, the Aussies went out. Uh, the Aussies a lot of times check in at the kennels and swap their FN rifles for RCARs and uh, guys that weren't out and we had a couple three extras and uh, we used them later on I'll go into that how some of the dog teams worked a little bit with the Aussies on, on some out of the perimeter sweeps we also did a couple three things actually did several with the Aussies on the outside not a lot at night on their ambushes none as a matter of fact but we did some daytime sweeping work after contacts just to see what the hell was out there with the dogs and the Aussies. And uh, we did a couple times of that with the Koreans, but they weren't easy to work with. And I have a story, a Korean story, I'll tell you later on if you remind me about it. So I'll tell you how hard they are to work with. <laughs> but uh, uh, the, the, the posts were the same. Uh, believe me, the posts are longer than 200 yards, okay? Uh, you may think they were 200 yards, but they were closer to a quarter mile and sometimes uh, every bit of that. Uh, 
they changed that up as we progressed and they took they took some posts out and stretched them and they tightened some posts up and made them smaller uh depending on the, the, the type of outside influence as far as what was happening in that particular area uh, we had we we doubled we doubled up in the Juliet area after uh, January 26 69 we doubled a lot of those posts and uh, we moved them over into the swamp behind the army warehouse uh, a few times and then uh, yeah we done a lot of one thing about the flight chiefs at that particular time is it evolved and I'll go into that too had a lot of discretion security wise believe it or not and i'll explain to that later once we get out of this uh the posts were pretty much the same but they were a little bit longer when i first got there uh how much wire did you have in the juliet area any and how much what water constantina wire oh uh it was sparse there was some that had it and some that didn't right what when I, when I first got there, there were some areas that didn't have any wire, uh, some over by the hotel, some by the golf, and some in the Juliet. You just had a trail, and uh, uh, when you first got there, your first 30 days, all you did, you had a choice, string wire on the wire to get acclimated in the new areas, which was the Juliet for me. Uh, they were really working on that. And uh, that or build, fill sandbags at the kennels and, and shovel dog crap. But, you know, you had your choice. I'd just soon be out on a wire sweating my ass off. But anyway, those posts were, they had become flexible to the flight chief. But as a rule of thumb, they didn't change at all from probably when until I left. Uh, techniques changed quite a bit, but uh patrolling techniques and response techniques and uh sat team techniques and anyway there were a lot of things that evolved real quick and i can go into that again in some detail if you want me to yeah i i think it's important to hear those things well i hunt the dog for a year almost a full year actually 11 months his name was Argon, Augie as we called him, Augie Doggy. And his serial number was 0707. Never mind. I changed it and I, I use that as my I use that as my uh, email address. 07MA uh, was my email address, but his real serial number is 06MA. And I did that for a reason, and that's just a personal thing. I didn't want serial number except me, but he was, he was a good dog, but he was one of three that I handled there. Uh, Augie wouldn't bite. He's a snapper. He'd run up, grab the suit, shake you, spit it out, look for another spot. Little dog, 72 pounds, hell of a good scout dog, good alert. And that's the only thing in safety, but he was not an attack dog per se, but he was sharp as attack on the end of that leash. So. I did, I did it as a handler and I pretty well knew most of the guys. I knew the routines. I knew what we were supposed to do and what we shouldn't do. And I knew how to break the rules like everybody else. And, uh, it was pretty low key when we first got there and, uh, things were, I'm going to say about like it was when you were there, 
uh, until I'm going to say May or June of 68. And if you look on the after action reports, the attack and after attack reports, I was there for 64 attacks on that base. And I think there were 67 total uh, the whole time the base was there with dogs. But when I say attacks, I'm talking uh, probes that made the after action reports, contacts on the wire on the ground that made after action reports, uh, more and rocket attacks. So, you know, that stretches out a long way and a lot of perimeter. So we started patrolling just like you guys did. Your first shift would go in out there just right after dark and you'd man every other post uh, unless there was an area and this happened later on where it was a little hotter and you had more contacts and you'd dump every post in there. In some places you put triple posts, one guy home three till the other second shift come out. It was just, you know, we were real flexible. Sometimes we were short of dogs. And handlers, not dogs so much as handlers. At the times, we only run 52 to 55 handlers between the flights, and we had 60 dogs or 58 dogs. I mean, we always had three or four or five dogs open, it seemed like. So we posted early, and we posted mid, and we come off early with one, and we run the last one late. And not much different. And you were issued your 12 magazines and three pop flares when I first got there. That was pretty much a, a standard thing. And you could carry more ammo. You throw a couple bandoliers in your ruck or your, as they used to use, five-gallon cans, dog feed cans to haul out there and sit on your ass and put all your shit and seize in. So all of that, all of that, I don't think changed much. So you were there through the whole time I was there as, as far as the basics of, of the layout and what, what you know what you know one of the things that is is really I think come up in in the people that I've talked to so far in the other podcast we had three uh, sensories our dogs uh, would obviously smell or they could hear um, and they could see but if you took a, a moonless night and airplane noise behind you, uh, you eliminated a lot of things and then put the wind to your back instead of your front, your dog almost became useless at some points. Absolutely. Dogs aren't the end of the world and the handler isn't either. Uh, there are some situations on that perimeter at night and everyone up still may have a little flashback about them where you felt totally worthless. Uh, the wind was wrong. You had, you didn't have a free fire zone. You didn't have a right to shoot H and I, you didn't have anything. The wind was wrong and you were up near the, above the strip gate or near the main gate. Uh, yeah, it wasn't pretty. And you had to become just like the guy in the tower. The big damn difference is the guy in the tower had bags, bunkers, machine guns, and, and things to retreat to. You didn't have nothing. You walked out there alone, and you had to do it. And uh, 
when a handler down below you got an alert and you had to walk down through there and all the conditions were wrong and and you knew your dog wasn't gonna do very well uh yeah it it's it wasn't all perfect i can tell you that right now uh there was a lot of luck involved in vietnam with dogs on the perimeter no doubt about it but i still do it today i sure don't want to do it every night with without a dog but yeah being a flight chief and going out there back and dog teams up and you had to slip down the wire without a dog sometimes and we cured that later i'll tell you about that but uh, it's the same concept you know you, yeah you're out there alone uh, you've got friendlies behind you that are itching to blow somebody's crap away and you've got maybe charlie on the other side maybe wanting to kill you that way not maybe but for sure <laughs> Uh, you were the sandwich. You were the ham and egg in the, in the, in the sandwich, and it—it's not a pleasant thing to you know, position to be in. Yeah, I—I I got called uh, one night to go with the scout team. We had gotten some mortars that had come in, and and they didn't have a scout dog, so they pulled me to go with them. And I—I I felt like I—I I referred to it like a tennis court net because. I had Charlie on one side and a bunch of guys with big guns and behind me. And if anything happened, I was in the middle. <laughs> well, you're, uh, you're not, you're not in a good position. And I, and that holds true for all of us that were on that wire. And I want to say wire, we all know what the wire means. And when you're humping the wire, uh, you may not hump, you may sit, but the point is when you're, when you're the baloney in the sandwich, uh, the whole time you're there, however long you were, uh, that wears on you psychologically. I guarantee you that. And, uh, and the further on as this evolved, it, it wears on you even more. And especially when they started the probes. And they started, they had some probes back when you were there. I know it because we, we had guys talk about it. And the big thing is, security control and, and the security forces that were there until the 821st showed up, uh, their savior, the combat security forces, they put those in there with the 35th. We didn't have anything. They had dogs, they had scout dog handlers trained, but they never deployed any at Van Rang. They never had dogs. The 821st did. They had the heavy weapons and the mortar crews and, uh, the advanced infantry tactics and blocking tactics. So they, they had that, but get, you know, getting back to us, we, we didn't change that much as the dog handler is on the wire early on, but we had probes. I remember one distinctly, a funny one. If you want to hear that, we had a handler and I won't name his name, but he was the littlest guy in our flight. And that'll probably give everybody a hand. And he had, one of the biggest mouths, wonderful guy, doing real well. Good dog handler. Got off in the Juliet area about three posts above where the January 26th incursion occurred. Drop him off on the early ship. Of course, he had a big dog, and he always used to take pictures of him riding this dog. I mean, that was the way it was. And uh, anyway, I, I'm not going to say his name, but anyway, he got off that post that night, or got on that post that night. And his dog, you know, his, your, 
you, the first thing you do, your dog is, is sniffing everywhere. And you don't give a shit whether you care or not. He's going to sniff everywhere and he's going to piss on everything he can and take his uh, take his initial dump. And you're hoping he takes the dump, you know, uh, real quick instead of out there in the wires. Because you don't want to step in dog shit in the middle of the night and sit somewhere. So he's cruising down through there right off the bat. First, first. This is according to him. And of course, everybody knows what happened after that. Right off the bat, uh, he's cruising down there with his dog, and it's a half assed moonlight. Moon's just coming up, so he's got a little bit of visibility. And it's best to run that while you don't have much light. Moonlight, you know how that worked. You didn't want to do a lot in the moonlight. And he sees this, the dog's lunging forward, and he, he says, Well, why is my dog wanting to take a leak on that rock? Why? He kept jerking him away and dogs lunged far. Well, it wasn't a rock. It was a sapper. It already got through the wire and the dog was within 10 feet of it. And all hell breaks loose. There were three or four of them and some on the outside of the wire and some on the inside of the wire. And he has this intense little firefight with one magazine full at point blank range. Nobody gets hit. Nobody gets killed on either side. And the dog survives the middle of it. He's in the, he's the baloney in the sandwich then. And this is the kind of things that when I first got there, a couple of these incidents happened where the guys, they were probing. And they were probing the Juliet area. They were probing the Bravo area. And they run the Delta area, the left of the strip gate and that big gully. They played in there a little bit. And then down at the culverts before you get to the bomb dump in the Delta area. That's where Logan got wounded, and I was the first week as a flight chief. I had to crawl out there and pull him back. Anyway, yeah, we started getting probes in June, July, August, September. As Christmas and colder weather came, uh, you know, that area, uh, we started getting a lot more activity on that wire, a lot of it. And uh, it was not unusual as a flight chief to respond to six, maybe eight, eight alerts, maybe 10 alerts at night, wow. uh, every night. And the dog handlers were serious about it. There's something out there, you know, and uh, I'll go into some of the techniques we, we used here later, if you, if you want about how we dealt with some of this, but that's kind of where we are with uh, the beginning of the evolution. Uh, tactics didn't change much from the flight chief at that point. Uh, we had a flight chief, as everybody knew, Redmond, and he's. I took the. I took his flight over from him when he left, but he started doing this after the 26th of January, and uh, uh, I kind of took it and evolved it from there. But he started backing his own dog teams up without having the sat, without having the sat teams messing with us. And uh, that was the beginning of the evolution. That was the first big attack, right? A big ground penetration. Yeah. yeah. We all know about January 26th. If you don't, call Greg Lord. He's written about it. He's got the documentation on it. If you were there, you know where you were at. You were there, you know what it was all about. And uh, there's no more stories. There's, yeah, there is, but... Uh, most everybody, uh, from the man that first detected Hunsinger uh, to 
you know, Captain Wright, I can go on and on with names. There was a lot of people involved in that, dog handler-wise, that got some pretty high decorations. And we all know who those guys are. So, so from that, that first attack, did you see penetrations increase then? No, not actually. After prior pre, prior to the first attack, uh, probes probes were just and nobody believed they were probes. CSE didn't really believe crap to begin with, but uh, after a couple shooting incidents on the wire in close and dirty uh then they got it figured out then after 26 anything that moved out there got shot at it was it was a different different idea completely the whole thing evolved real fast after the 26 and we had a, a big free hand and in, in, in working that perimeter the dogs teams and the, they were kind of calling the shots before it wasn't so much. You had to have a flight chief out there from security to, with a blocking force. And then they laid everybody out there and got ready and you swept and nothing happened. And everybody went home and they grumbled. Don't do that no more unless you really know. Well, who in the hell knows what you really know until you, until somebody pulls a, pulls a trigger on you. I mean, so you take every incident as real. And by God, I'll tell you what. They got more real as this evolved. Yeah, when it, the first uh, few that I had seemed like they were on the wire, but they 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 really never, uh, I don't believe, got inside the wire. But there were two incidents that I had where uh, we were fairly close to one another. We were probably within twenty yards of each other, and the and the gunfight lasted probably forever, but at least 20 minutes, it seemed like forever, maybe, but it, it, it seemed like it lasted a long time, but, uh, that's a long time. Yeah. Uh, but I only had two of those incidents where, uh, one, I ran out of ammo. Actually, I, I went through my entire bandolier of, of ammo. That you carried two after that, didn't you? I, I got better prepared. <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody evolved through that. It's, it's amazing. And uh, I guess I could talk a little bit more about how, how this all went about after the 26th of January. It was a big wake-up call. We realized, and CSC realized, and I think all of us realized now that now that this, this was no joke. Uh, shit happens quick and uh it can happen anytime after that and they like i say they mortared us a lot more uh they give us a lot of rockets they started shooting 103s and and uh uh they do it in the middle of the day they do it in the evening they do it at night and as you know well no we lost uh, a handler in the middle of the day joe loftus with one and uh yeah, uh, it, it started changing. We, we, we got hit pretty frequently uh, through that Tet of 69. And then it petered off uh, to a degree and it picked up again uh, in, in 1970, in the winter of 1970. And we had a, a, quite a bit of activity in February. 1970 and in March, and then it kind of petered off again. And when I, I left in June of 70, uh, there wasn't a lot going on 
that particular time compared to the 26 on. Uh, it was cyclic, but mostly it seemed in the, the closer to that, the more more brave uh, Charlie got and the more things he had attempted to do. So that was how, you know, how I see that. Did you, did you experience uh, several incidences of combat yourself or? No, you know, I had, I had uh, three, four incidences, uh, two as a dog handler, uh, uh, humping the dog. One involved, you know, one was involved with gunfire. The other was a, a mortar attack that, that they run right at my post. And uh, uh, both of them were light. And and I got to tell you, I had two other incidents as a flight chief, three other as a flight chief that required exchange of gunfire on February 11th, 1970. Uh, in the Bravo area, we had a dog handler. I have a story about that, but we have a dog. We had a dog handler. We had an incident there. We were getting probed for a week, week and a half. And at that point, we had an army, an army unit, a mechanized army unit. I don't know what they called them. They had a tank retriever and they had a, a tank and they had a couple APCs. And they had, they put them in that old army compound behind the Bravo area, behind the hotel area there. You remember where that was across yeah. the road? Well, they opened it up again. And they decided they were going to put the army out there to do us a grand bit of help. So they run a tank retriever out there behind the, the warehouse at the end of Juliet area in that swamp. And they had parked it there and it sunk overnight. And it stayed there the rest of the friggin' time I was there. And they used it as an LP. They manned that tank retriever and it stuck in the swamp. When I left, it was still stuck in the swamp. But that was their deal. See, that was their security. Then they brought a damn tank retriever with a, with a humongous spotlight. And they pulled it up on the road right at the strip gate. And they, not at the strip gate, the left of the strip gate where the wire come pretty close to the, the perimeter road. And they parked that damn thing there. And he'd shine that arc light down the damn fence line at unknown times. Then we'd scream so much that they had to call security control when they were going to flip the lights so we could get out of there. So that was a change of security for us. Uh, but during that February period, that particular area there was getting probed quite a bit. The hotel area and the Bravo area. Uh, we had a lot of handlers call a lot of alerts in there, as well as the Julia. So we got feeling that they were starting to play again. So we were, our attitudes were up there pretty high. So on February 11th, about one in the morning, I'll go back, I'll digress here. Uh, about two weeks before that, we dog handler would get an alert in that area and the army had a APC and they, wanted to run their own blocking force. So they'd get an alert, CSC call, and they'd rumble down that damn road there with an APC like the U.S. Cavalry. And they'd park there on the road and pop flares and carry on. So this wasn't going real well for anybody. Uh, so we decided we're going to do our own thing. So I had two dog handlers out there, and I told them, I gave them a radio, and I sat at the damn main gate. I'd sit there and I said, when you get an alert, 
just click your radio three times. I can hear you click in it. I says, I'll ease up there and me and uh, uh, whoever I have riding with me. Uh, we'll ease up there and, and, and see what the heck you got. Let's get to the bottom of this thing. Well, this went on the very first night that, that we uh, eliminated the army from the equation. The very first night, lo and behold, they probed us and we caught them on the wire. And we killed two NBA sappers and the Aussie and crippled one. And uh, the Aussies uh, went out the strip gate, caught our cripple, and uh, almost to the strip where the strip was until it burned down. But where the strip was that I don't know if everybody remembers going to the strip, but there was a little little bridge. And they, when they caught him down there and caught him alive and they drug his ass back. And uh, the next day we went out there and we swept that with dogs. And uh, it was a lot of blood, I think more than him. But that canal bank there is what they were doing and our dogs found it. What they were doing is they were coming down that canal bank through the water and they dug just like a beaver den underneath there at water's level. And that's where they were sitting. And the dogs could smell them, but we could never see nothing. And you could H and I, you couldn't H and I that because of the population back there. So a lot of times we had to carry shotguns out there. I don't know if you guys knew that, mm -hmm. but strip gate guys carried shotguns instead of ARs because especially after, actually after the 26th of January, we did. And, uh, that particular night, I had a sergeant, new flight chief sergeant I was breaking in. And believe it or not, a Stars and Stripes reporter in the back of that Jeep sitting among the ammo cans. And he sat in the Jeep and watched that whole thing. And I think I had six grenades on and, and the other flight chief, and I won't mention his name. He, I left him there. He's a hell of a good guy, by the way. He had that many grenades. And grenades became a big thing, by the way. I'll, I'll explain how the evolution came there, too. And we threw enough grenades in that damn canal bank to rupture the canal bank. I'm not kidding you. We emptied every grenade we had in there. And uh, that's how that evolved. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Stay tuned for the rest of Bob's story. Thank you for listening to War Dogs Podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and share with your friends and family.